You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. If you're just waking up from your Celtics loss hangover, your sad depression nap, let me be the first to lighten your day by telling you that the 76ers have been nailed. Not by cheating accusations, not by a brutal off-season injury, but by the most 2018 thing we've ever heard of, The collision between NBA Twitter and the real NBA world. Now, these two separate planets, light years apart, have been able to remain largely separated through common sense. That didn't prevail in this situation for Celtics, or 76ers rather, GM Brian Colangelo, who is probably going to be the fall guy for some other... General managers, team executives, dabbling in this world. Because you see, The Ringer published a report. Unfortunately, not our old friend Kevin O'Connor, but Ben Detrick. About suspicion over Twitter accounts that criticize Joel Embiid, Markel Fultz. Disclosed sensitive information. And outline team strategy. All of them held similarities, Detrick said. They responded to reporters. Keith Pompey tweeted about a Jaleel Okafor injury in February 2017. And a Twitter account by the name of Eric Jr., Alvic 4-0 bunch of letters, said, Ask Jeff if he passed the other team physical. He will not say not to lose other chance. But I bet... The farm, it's what happened. Interesting. So he fires out five accounts. Filet, numbers. Alvic, numbers. Honesta, numbers. Enough Unknown, 01. S. Bonhams. And little do you know, the ringer reaches out to the 76ers. All they have to do is deny this. But so shocked, I'm sure, by KD using a burner account... To say KD can't win with those cats and alleviate some of the pressure off of him. And Lord knows Colangelo has gotten pressure not just from outside Philly, but especially within the 76ers organization. They go to Colangelo 
Ask him if he's been using a burner account to respond to tweets about players that he apparently has issues with. Sam Hinkie praise, Colangelo criticism, and he admits it. He doesn't admit to all five accounts, but he admits it. But within a day or two of Philadelphia confirming to the ringer that Colangelo did use a burner account to track industry trends or something, three of the accounts that the ringer was tracking and that they didn't reveal to Philadelphia went private. They unfollowed connections of Colangelo's. It all came together in this article that you need to read. Pretty much revealing that Brian Colangelo used a burner account. Unbelievable. There's 21 tweets right out here. The funniest among them, and I still go back to that, those cats can't win, or KD can't win with those cats, from way back when with our original Durant brush up our buddy Ryan on Twitter pulled out one of the tweets once again from Eric Jr. you are crazy Colangelo is cleaning up Hinky's mistakes and being killed while keeping mouth shut and protect them let's see how many followers Eric Jr. has now 2,264 not too long ago he had 200 or so and that has just risen all day. I'm sure if you click on the account, you'll see it rise. And the 76ers, this is a seminal moment in NBA Twitter history because the 76ers within the next few days are going to have to come out with a response about their general manager using a burner account to engage in dialogue with us. But it's hilarious. Because we're watching every single game. We're probably the most sensible sometimes. Voices around these teams. We're wacky. We're weird. I'm sure people talk about it around these organizations. And these people want to get a taste of what's going on on the internet. Fire back at the conversation. The criticism that they can plainly see through their own accounts, but can't because of the blue check mark next to them. I know people have dabbled in the conspiracy theories that Janos could be a plug from inside the Celtics. I don't believe that for one second, but when you see stuff like this going on, these wacky conspiracies inch a little bit closer to reality. Could you have come up with this? Come on. Kevin Durant doing it is one thing. A man knowing the inner workings of the organization and being involved in all the sensitive activities that go on within, tweeting about that through a fake account. How is anyone else in Philadelphia going to look at this guy the same way again? I'm sure he didn't think it was as big of a deal as he said he was trying to follow industry trends. But he has followed people on Twitter. And if he's checking one of those burner accounts tonight, he sees just how big of a deal this is in our world. 
another big deal is that the Celtics lost to the Cavaliers and their season is over. So that's what we are really going to talk about tonight with Justin Rowan of Fear the Sword. It's our last conversation with Justin Rowan as the Cavaliers march into a fourth straight NBA final series. I'm going to argue tonight that the Celtics lost the Eastern Conference Finals more than LeBron James beat them. Role players gone involved. We're going to talk about Jeff Green and how that's become a story. I didn't hear anyone coming into this series talking about how the Green return was going to be at the center of the storylines around this series. But he scored double figures in the last two games. And I have an interesting stat for you regarding him tonight that might give Cleveland a sliver of hope. Probably not in the NBA Finals. But it gave them enough support to get past the Boston Celtics. And this one stings, guys. It's up there with 2010 Finals. It's up there with the 2012 East Finals. Those are probably the two most devastating Celtics moments of my years following the team. Expectations aren't as high this time. The stakes weren't the same. You were just battling to go get sawed in half by the Warriors. But you don't like to see a team that showed so much promise all year, did so much in this series to build 2-0 and 3-2 leads, completely escape their element in the final moments in the game, and work a one-possession, two-possession game into garbage time within the matter of a minute through horrid decision-making. There's plenty of off-season conversation ahead. There is so much to talk about this week anyway. So we're doing two episodes of the Celtics Vlog Podcast this week. Tonight we're talking to Justin Rowan about the Cavaliers series that was. And then we are moving forward, not backward, because we are on to next year. As you've heard on CelticsVlog.com, on Twitter... The Celtics have a little bit of promise next year, but they have some things to clean up in the offseason first. We aren't going to be as busy with signings, signing regrets, and then confirmed signings like we were last summer with Gordon Hayward. But we got a few free agents on the table here in Boston. Those things need to be addressed, and we will do so with our resident luxury tax expert, Sam Sheehan. I'm sure he's going to want to talk about Colangelo. I'll give him a chance. First, I'll give Justin Rowan a chance to explain why he thought the Cavaliers were going to lose the series in seven and if that was a jinx to get the result that he did. We welcome back to the Celtics Blog Podcast, Justin Rowan, who successfully... Jinx the Celtics going into Game Seven. <laughs> I can't believe it. We were in the DMs. You were shouting doom and gloom. I could, I should have known something was up. And you said LeBron's leg was hurt. I didn't see it in Game Seven. You thought the Cavs were doomed. You didn't see it. He could get by Aaron Baines, man. <laughs> after the game, I didn't know who got me, uh, but after the game, Larry. Asked me was I okay, so I'm guessing he was the, the corporate of it. Um, I just felt someone fall into my leg and kind of, my leg kind of went in. Um, you know, and, you know, 
felt some pain, you know, throughout my entire right, right side of my leg, into my ankle, into my leg. So, um, you know, I was just hoping for the best, obviously, because I've seen so many um, different injuries, you know, and, you know, watching basketball with that type of injury. So you look pretty good. There were just 12 lead changes coming into game seven, if I have that number correctly. 11 or 12. Right. And all of a sudden, you have a game that was ultra competitive, tie game, one, two possessions all the way throughout. And I'm like, where, where was that the whole series? And I'm wondering <laughs> now that we know LeBron James put in an overdrive, game six, game seven, broke our hearts a la 2012. Mm-hmm. Do you think he managed his way through the series, built it up for dramatic effect a little bit? I don't think it's for dramatic effect. I think that this is the reality of being 33 years old and playing 15 seasons plus like maybe another two or three seasons if you factor all the playoff games he's had. I don't think it's anything that it's a conscious decision. Um, certainly game one, I, I think we both agreed that that, that was less than a hundred percent effort from LeBron, but that's something that he commonly does in early series. Well, we uh, did games. see that he definitively checked out of those Boston games and that's why they went the way they did looking back on it. Right, right. I, I still think game two, he was trying to do the, uh, the 2012 throwback, the, the stare game there before he got hit in the head. Um, but yeah, it, obviously he did have another gear. Um, I, I think also just kind of the realization with Kevin Love being out, it's okay, well, now I have to dig deep. Now I have to give absolutely everything that's in my tank here. And I, I mean, we, we've seen that throughout sports history, right? Like when someone goes down, you, other guys dig in and they, they pull something out from within them uh, that you don't always see. And uh, we've saw that with Boston and how they've responded to all these injuries this season. And then obviously you saw it in game seven where guys like Jeff Green stepped up. J.R. Smith, who had a bad first half of the game, really dug deep, made some big shots and came up with a big uh, couple big defensive plays. Um, so I, I don't think it was a conscious effort being like, OK, well, I can just kind of buy my time. I'm going to flip the switch when I need to. I, I think it was just oh, a, was an no under- flippage of the switch for once. <laughs> no, no, it was no flipping of the switch. It was just I'm not ready for my season to end here and I'm going to go down giving it everything I have. James did some interesting things in this series. We saw him go down with the leg injury, which you really bought stock in. If you hear the conversation around here, myself included, there seem, we seem to think there was a little bit of drama spiced up there. No, Maybe no, not. he was legitimately really hurt. Um, he was limping pretty heavily and received really extensive treatment on that leg. Yeah, the ice. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. The ice. The ice is one thing. If um, actually my uh, co-host on the Chase Down podcast uh, brought this up when he covered. Uh, a game in Chicago earlier this year. I'm the sure. amount of ice that guy puts on his body after every game is just astronomical. Yeah. Like, we, we saw that in the locker room after game seven. Or game six, it might have been the two feet in the water and, like, the massive bags on both legs. It makes sense. 40-plus yeah. minutes, game six, game seven. Which is why I look at it and say, brutally hurt. Do you think he's capable of going 46, 48 minutes the next two nights after that? That. That, that seems yeah. a little suspect to me. Well, don't forget, it wasn't going... Uh, so, yeah, it was two nights later. He got hurt towards the end of Game 6. 
Um, I, I mean, his knee kind of buckled the wrong way. I, I know how much that hurts. I'm automatically very sympathetic to knee injuries with the amount that I've had. Yeah, um, so that that might be part of it where I just look at anything and uh, I, I compare that to my mere mortal standards. Um, but he, he I, I don't think it was just for the drama. He likes to, to pride himself in being able to tough out things. And, and that was actually a source of tension between him and Kyrie was that he thought Kyrie didn't tough out injuries enough. Um, but no, it, he does stay down for longer than he needs to in a game. And I think that's, oh, I don't think. That is the, like the Rondo move of <laughs> if you can get rest within the course of a game, you stay down. Uh, you, you really draw those out so you can almost get a timeout. Uh, but in terms of after the game, I don't think he's walking well, around with he, a big he did get He did get a timeout flying in the crowd in the early portions of Game 7. So maybe that <laughs> mindset doesn't, doesn't uh, go too far from reality. Right. The, the game was interesting. And did you legitimately go in thinking Cleveland was going to lose Game 7? Yes, 100%. Stunning. Um, I, I you was know how really- this history goes with him. I, I know how the history goes, but I, I was legitimately concerned about how Jeff Green and Tristan Thompson were going to look together. And I think we saw in the first half that the spacing was really, really poor. Um, and th- that's a problem because Tristan Thompson had been so effective in the series and Jeff Green had been effective at times, but you just couldn't play them together with LeBron. And I mean, when Boston was up 12 there, that was legitimately a point where it was, okay, the next two, three possessions here are going to decide the game. Because if that got to 14, 16 points, LeBron wasn't going to have enough in the tank to overcome that deficit and then close out the Celtics. My, what I, when I was talking to people and I, I said, I had no confidence really going into that. I said, the only scenario where this works out is if they can keep it close throughout the course of the game and towards the end, hope that Boston's youth starts to finally show, which I, I think is what ended up happening. It was stunning, the last six minutes, two minutes. And this was about as devastated as I've been watching the team in quite some time. There were comparisons to 2010 going on, which are a stretch because you're playing for the East here, not a championship. But similar feelings set in where they were in a great position in this game. Up 12, the early start was sensational. When Jason Tatum hit the early shot from mid-range, the one is LeBron dive by him into the crowd from three, and they went up 6 nothing very fast. It was hard not to feel good about the game, the way the shots were falling, the way the defense was standing firm. And somehow or another, as the game flipped into that period where they were up 12, they could have pushed it to that 15-plus range as you were just talking about. They went ice cold, and Cleveland was still missing shots but they just weren't able to get it done themselves on the offensive end. And what stunned me in this game is that they were open shots. That hadn't yep. been as much of a problem for Boston this year as much as it was for them in past years. And we saw what they did last year against Cleveland in Game 7. Open looks just completely clanking out, hucking threes, no aggression offensively. The bonus thing in the fourth quarter drove me crazy. They had nine minutes of bonus. And so I look at three factors coming out of this one. The bonus the Kevin Love injury, and the lead they had in this game, as well as the leads they've had in the series. And I look at it not as they did great, never would have expected them to be here. I say they blew a chance to go to the finals. And that was my early reaction. And as much as Cleveland performed to the capacity in this game, I think, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Boston just handed it to Cleveland. Like that's at least 80 to 85% of the outcome to me. 
Yeah, and I mean, that was something that we had discussed earlier was that my my frustration, especially over game two is or game five was the most frustrating for me because I I felt like that was a game where the Cavs should have won. They held Boston to just terrible shooting. I think it was around 37 percent and they they didn't win that game. It was another game where Cleveland missed 20. I think it was like 25, 26 uh, wide open three pointers. And uh, I, I mean, I, I can relate to your frustration about missing open shots in the garden. Yep. <laughs> uh, but I, I just felt like that game really eliminated the margin for error for Cleveland that they weren't going to be able to survive another bad shooting game because um, while, while Boston wasn't exactly able to, to muster a lot of great offensive performances throughout the series, uh, it was clear that the, their defense did give the Cavs trouble, and um, I, I felt like it, it really left them susceptible to to a situation like what happened in Game Six, where you, you lose Kevin Love, J.R. Smith gets hurt, LeBron hurts his knee, and and um, obviously it pales in comparison to the the grand total of injuries that the Celtics have. But at least when we're talking about the players that were available heading into the series, it, it's rather significant. We're going to talk about Jeff Green and that Kevin Love situation in just a second. But throughout the second half, what was going through your mind? Because it still was that single possession, two possession game, even though Cleveland seemed to shift into the driver's seat at that point with that small marginal lead. And it really took a turn, I think, at the Rogier block. That was right around the tie game area. Smart stripped LeBron right after that and got Boston right back in it. So the door was still wide open there. But that block, I don't know, maybe that set the tentativeness into Boston for the rest of the night. It was a foul. It was so clearly a foul. And the way they kept showing it over (laughs) and over again after, blind eye to the complete smack of the hand. And the way they just showed over and over again. But wasn't that after the ball? Wasn't that after the ball, though? No, I don't think he touched the ball at all. If you smack the ball, the ball goes flying in the other direction. The ball just kind of, like, flew off to the side after it. So I guess they're not going to make a call like that in a game like that. But it, it The hand is me. the extension of the ball. The shooting hand is the extension of the ball. <laughs> is that your take on the play? Well, no, I it, it grazed the hand. and uh, Well, it grazed the ball, and then he made contact with the hand. I did see him make contact with the hand, but I, I think that that wasn't a call. I do think, actually, and I know all your Boston listeners are going to disagree with this, but I think Cleveland got a pretty tough whistle in that game, uh, uh, especially in the first half. Um, I was... Oh, yeah, the smart charge take. I'll give you that one. <laughs> yeah, the smart charge. And there was a few other ones where... It, I, I didn't feel like it was one-sided officiating. I just felt like there was inconsistency where um, a lot of physical play was um, being allowed. Um, there was a lot of reaching and grabbing, and then when it would go down on the other end, you you wouldn't see that be the case. Like, um, and, and I actually get the frustration that Jason Tatum would have because they were really allowing him to reach in and be physical on those post-ups and, and grab and pull a little bit. Um, a lot of the time, but then other times it would be called as a foul. Yeah. So I, I think I think that he was actually. fouling LeBron routinely, but if you're going to allow that earlier on, you have to continue allowing it. And I don't think that played as big of a role in the outcome as the horrid two-minute management did. The shot checking was just out of this world with the bonus. Not being they lost their composure. Again that, that they weren't playing Celtics basketball. It was stunning to watch. And the way it just got so far out of hand, the transition runs, the George Hill run right after a bad miss, uh, the LeBron one that really sealed it when Morris pulled him from behind, it became garbage time. 
in a game that was a tie game just a minute ago. And that's what really hit me to the core of this one. It was a complete choke job in the final two minutes. And I think everybody has some role to play in that, from the sideline, the coach, to all the players on the floor, and especially Al Horford, who had 14 points in the first half and completely disappeared in the second half. And this time, I, you, you love the Tristan Thompson theories. The numbers line up. I actually have them right here, the per 36 one that someone posted, Ben Dowsett. With Tristan yeah. Thompson on, 33% field goal for Horford, minus 6.2 rating. With Thompson off, 67% split, 44% outside, 23 net mm-hmm. rating, which is just a stunning split. But was it as simple as Thompson giving him fits, especially in Game 7? Because I don't think so. Um, I think it's a, it's a big part of it. And it's not necessarily just Tristan Thompson defending him one-on-one because a lot of the times Jeff Green or LeBron would be switched on to Al Horford. But it's it's having Tristan Thompson there to provide that help defense, um, to, to be there if they do switch beyond that. Uh, whereas if Kevin Love is out there, um, they're just more susceptible to Horford getting into the paint, getting deep post position, finishing his hook shots, whereas Thompson really does have the, the strength to, to body him. And you saw that stretch where Larry Nance was in the game. Um, that that was the, the worst stretch that the Cavs had. Uh, he just didn't have the strength to deal with Al Horford. Um, he, he got bullied around when he was in position. Um, but in most cases, Al Horford just kind of got a free run to the basket or, or was able to find guys that have free run to the basket off blown rotation. So I do think Tristan Thompson had a big impact on that. And I, I think at this point, it's safe to say it's a little more than a theory because we're, we're now running on a four year sample size and every if you go game by game, yeah. regular season and postseason, there isn't a single game where you don't see these type of splits, uh, this type of deviation in the numbers. There, there was a swing back earlier in the series, though, the 8-10 game. He had success in the series with mm-hmm. Thompson out there, and it ultimately just over the course regressed to the mean, I guess. Which is where it. Well, no, like e- even if you like, if you look at each of the individual games, like even uh, in game one and two, uh, the the at least the team numbers and all that were were dramatically different uh, with Thompson sharing the floor with Al Horford. Um, but no, it, it, as I said, it's not about what Al Horford can do individually against Tristan Thompson or what Tristan Thompson does individually against Al Horford. Al Horford, and we discussed this earlier. Um, he is going to make the right decision almost all the time. So if you have somebody like Tristan Thompson that has length that can defend him on all three levels, you can bait him into being a little bit passive because he's going to make those right reads. He's going to get it to other guys. But if it's Kyrie so hard Irving, to get him on the ball too, and I I don't know why they struggled so much doing that because he is a player who you can have bring the ball up the floor, and they just mm-hmm. refuse to do it all series, which I think isn't playing one of your cards which in this sense, where the Celtics were coming into this, is a huge mistake. Right, right. And But I really don't get with people saying that that should be an indictment on Al Horford, though, because it's almost an issue with team construction in terms of who's currently available. If you have Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving out there, those guys can be your offensive hubs, and you can have Al Horford yeah. just making the right decisions and playing within the flow of the offense. He isn't a takeover guy in every single matchup. He certainly can be. You saw how he exposed Joel Embiid, which is 
which Joel Embiid's a, a better defensive player over the course of a regular season than Tristan Thompson, but Thompson just has that unique mobility, that unique length and strength, as well as the knowledge and experience. Like Thompson is a very smart player. He's been through these battles. He knows how to play against Al Horford, while Embiid is still kind of learning some of those NBA tricks. So it's, it's, it shouldn't be an indictment on Al Horford uh, that he struggled with Thompson out there. But that was just one of the reasons why early in the series and, and when we recorded uh, down 0-2, why I said that has to be the adjustment, that Tristan Thompson has to be a consistent factor in, in the series. Whereas now if you're looking towards the NBA Finals, I don't think Thompson has as much of a role. Yeah, a lot of guys aren't going to, I'd imagine. We'll get to the Finals right before this ends, but... Since it is does seem to be a bit of a um, formu- formulality or whatever it's called, formality, that's the word I'm formality. looking for. Formality, there you yes. go. Hard to find words on this show. But <laughs> we'll talk about that in the end since it is going to be such a formality of the season. In fact, I think we've seen the most interesting series already. Jeff Green is headed to the NBA Finals, though, along with former Celtics John Holland and Kendrick Perkins. Which is fun. And Ante Zizic. Yes. Don't forget Big Z. Oh, okay, thank you. I didn't have him on the list, which says something. But Jeff Green did play a role in the outcome of this series. Not as big a one as people want to illustrate. And I think it's funny that there's so many Jeff Green, former Celtic, comeback story articles out there now because people didn't play that up coming into the series. You barely even heard announcers saying this was a former Celtic coming in. Maybe it just had to do with what his role was expected to be in this series. But looking back on it now, their playoff run so far, he has the most points per possession in transition on the Cavs. And that was where his impact was most evident to me in Game 7. As the Celtics got wild, left those loose balls off shots out there, Green was able to leak out into the opening court and catch those outlet passes from LeBron. And it was only 14 points. He shot horrible from three. The two big ones he made were substantial but yeah his biggest plays were in transition to me so big time what did you expect from Jeff Green coming into this year and has he exceeded your expectations I was I warmed up to Jeff Green early on this season uh he actually made a really big difference uh for the first half of the season I don't know if the Cavs would have been in as good of a position as they ended up being in without him being there Uh, which isn't saying a lot because obviously the regular season was very underwhelming Um, But especially early on, Jeff Green had kind of toned down his game where he wasn't doing a lot of isolation basketball. Uh, He was getting his baskets off, off ball movement, cuts to the basket, out in transition. And that was really effective. Uh, There was a stretch after the All-Star break where he was kind of playing a little iso ball and a little classic Jeff Green. But when he's playing smart and, and doing what he does well, he can be really effective. And and if you're talking about a guy that's on a vet minimum contract, uh, it's just been terrific value for the Cavs this year. And and you shouldn't be in a position where you have to rely on those guys. Um, but on multiple occasions this year when they've needed to count on him, uh, he, he's come up in a big way. He has. And I had mentioned to you, half-jokingly, the Cavaliers being better without love, but things did seem to open up for them a little bit in those last two games. I don't know if it wasn't as many defensive mishaps for them that he's obviously a part of a substantial amount of time or just a smaller lineup that LeBron might have felt more in his element with because you didn't see a lot of Thompson in Game 6 in that overwhelming victory. They went back to Thompson a lot in Game 7, but for the most part they were running that LeBron and run lineup 
that right took, and Larry Nance had a much better yeah, game as well took Cavaliers just on the fly which we didn't get to talk about game six too much but I, is there any credence to that you think that's no. going to change how things go for the Cavs moving forward no there, there is absolutely none um I mean if you're looking at I, so Boston's played poorly on the road throughout the playoffs, and I think that was a lot of it in Game 6. Um, they The Cavs went to that smaller lineup, and, and it worked fine. Um, as I said, they, they reduced the minutes with Jeff Green and Tristan Thompson in that game, and, and that worked out well. Uh, but if you look at Game 7, that was by no stretch of the imagination a good game for the Cavaliers. Yeah. Um, the spacing really helped hurt uh, their ability to get into their offense. LeBron wasn't able to get to the rim, um, which some of that had to do with spacing. Some of that had to do with the knee that you're skeptical about. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I, the I mean, ice was on the middle section of the leg, so it's somewhere on there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it all factors in. And then on the other hand... You have Boston, which got 11 offensive rebounds in that game, um, and they just the Cavs struggled to to rebound throughout that game, which isn't typically an issue with them, especially uh, in lineups where they're playing Thompson and Love. Uh, so I think he would have helped in a big way there. Uh, the funny thing with Kevin Love is he doesn't really need to put up big stats to put up a big impact in the game. And there were times where he, he's been very big for the team, uh, getting those 20 and 10 games in the playoffs. But then there's other games where you just have to at least account for him. And Jeff Green, I mean, he, he got, as you said, he didn't hit a lot of his threes, but he got a lot of open looks because the Celtics were completely ignoring him they offensively. There were a lot of doubles at LeBron that got him open looks, I saw. Right, and they were able to send a second and sometimes even a third defender at LeBron at times. Uh, which you wouldn't be able to do if Kevin Love's out there, or at least the threat of Kevin Love is there on the perimeter. So, uh, no, yeah, he, they are not a better team with I, uh, I Jeff Green. I hear you Green talk about him that way, though. And are we in the situation where Love, the former superstar, you know, 25 and 14 player, has just become a four stretcher for this team, a really good four stretcher, one of the best in the game, maybe? But mm-hmm. is that worth the money, the cap percentage he's taking up on that team? Because I came into. Game seven saying, if Cleveland loses this, forget LeBron. We might see the end of Love with this team before we see the end of LeBron with this team because we know they only have two chips, Love and the Brooklyn pick. Right. I, I mean, that that might be the case no matter what this year. Um, I think in years past, uh, especially the first two years, uh, he was used far too much as a decoy. Uh, in 2016-2017, we saw them really integrate Love into the lineup a whole lot more. Um, and then this year, uh, Kevin Love just had a, an outstanding year for them. Uh, they, they really did use him as a second option. Uh, they used him in the high post at times, cutting off ball. Uh, he actually put up the most efficient offensive season of his career. Um, and he, he was very, very effective. The only things that really hurt his numbers throughout the course of his season was the one month he shared with Isaiah Thomas, uh, because Isaiah was uh, very, very, very motivated to be the number one option on this team, yeah. um, no matter who he was on the court with. And then the other time... And <laughs> it was a mission. Issues, yeah, and then the other issues were just uh, him post-surgery, right, uh, where where he was out for a while. And, and don't forget, uh, part of 
his limitations in this uh, this year is that he's actually playing with a torn ligament in his hand uh, after the Indiana series. So he's had some injuries there. Um, so when I'm talking about the threat that he brings when he's just on the court and even if he's not playing well offensively, I'm just kind of referring to uh, the impact that he has when on the court. But overall, especially against Toronto, I mean, he was a massive factor in that series. And uh, he's been a very, very good player for the Cavs in in the playoffs overall uh, throughout his tenure with the team. If you want to dream of Paul George, though, as I think you do, it would make sense, I think, to pair up Russell and Love, not just the college factor, but I think those are two games that could mesh. So maybe you have something. Listen, they're they're losing Paul George for nothing. Uh, They can have the Brooklyn pick. They can have JR. They can have Steady if it takes that. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure they're loving the thought of Jr. <laughs> well, hey, they, actually, we were joking about this on the Dime podcast. Um, it would be hilarious if they took uh, Jordan Clarkson and uh, Jr. because then you just have Ross Clarkson and Smith as just the most volatile three guard lineup in NBA history. <laughs> but uh, well, no, part of this I mean, too is going to be repaying. But no, you're, they're not getting. I, I've seen people throw out Kevin Love in the Brooklyn pick. You're not getting both of those guys for a guy that can leave as a free agent and is going to leave as a free agent in all likelihood. Um, so I, I think getting a top uh, top ten pick in a very deep draft for a guy that you're about to lose and, and matching salary is, is more than enough. Let's turn back to Jason Tatum because I am devastated beyond the loss. And I don't think I've made this clear enough. This is right up there with some of the worst losses I've seen in my Celtics lifetime because I should be preparing for the finals right now. You shouldn't even be in the studio. We should. This should be a moment of celebration. And instead, this is just agony going into the finals. I do think there would have been some novelty to Celtics Warriors, as some people were indicating online, but whatever. That's they a what if. Been stomped. <laughs> they put up a 102 offensive rating against the Cavs, who have a historically bad defense. They would be demolished by the Warriors. Not that the Cavs aren't going to get demolished by the Warriors, <laughs> but I, all the novelty wears off anyway. very, very quickly. All right, seeing the Cavaliers demolished is one thing. One thing you never want to see get wiped off this earth is your hair. And you think it's never going to come when you're my age. But the fact is 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. And when it starts to creep, it is already too late. That's called the demolishment phase. So... If a bald spot pops up, it's already too late. You want to think ahead of the game and go with the solution to hair loss. Forhims.com, your one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, anything a man needs. They connect you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions that treat hair loss. It's the well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions that help you keep your hair. And there are no waiting rooms, awkward doctor visits, or hours spent trying to figure out a problem that Hims has solved. So check it out. Celtics Blog Podcast listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today. Not much for a head of hair. While supplies last, see website for full details. This could cost you hundreds if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash C-B. 
is in Celtics blog. Forhims.com slash CB. I could have at least used a classic Tatum-LeBron duel, which it looked like we were heading toward for periods of the game. I thought they were going to be going point total for point total all night long, just like Pearson LeBron did back in the day. Should have known that's not how the offense works, which is a conversation for another day and how that's going to work next season. But you famously compared Tatum to Harris, which I still won't let you get over. But Yeah, I don't think that's an insult, but yeah, continue. Are you, are you concerned if LeBron's sticking in Cleveland going forward that Tatum's going to become a force that just overtakes the East? What are your... Thoughts about course, him coming out of this? Of course, series. I mean the the guy's a star. Like he's a star in the making, and and I I reverse course on the Tatum thing. I, I again I don't think that the Tobias Harris thing is necessarily an insult. I Do you have a new comparison that, for him that will make what? me happier? Do you have a new comparison for him now coming out of this series? Um, I would say uh, Carmelo Anthony with defense there and a go. sense of team basketball um, <laughs> because he, uh, I mean, his footwork is gorgeous. Um, it, and I think that footwork uh, really, really is an encouraging sign if you're talking about whether or not he's going to be able to tighten up his handle, how his game is going to grow. Uh, he, When you have that solid foundation, you're just going to become a dynamic scorer. Um, but, I mean, again, Tobias Harris shot... 47% from the floor, 41% from three, and 19 points per game this year. I, I think he's a pretty damn good player. But I just didn't think that Jason Tatum was going to have that consistent three-point shot, at least this early in his career. Um, and he had the range. He has, uh, as I said, great footwork. Um, his body control and that core strength is, is really impressive as well, the way that he's able to navigate in the air, line up, square up his shoulders. I mean, He's everything that you'd want in a, in a scorer, and yeah, I, I think he's going to absolutely be a force in the league. I caught some flack for this on Twitter, but I do think this loss is going to have some silver lining for him and Brown, especially the way he played in Game 7, because those two guys, I think, are going to be fired up by the way this series went. It's going to add some extra inspiration. Maybe a whooping from Golden State would have done the same thing, but... I'm very excited to see what these guys look like with new elements added to their game because I think in this series more than any, the fact that they weren't able to create for themselves substantially, especially in Brown's case, hurt the Celtics a lot because those two guys needed way more shots the way they were producing. Tatum especially in Game 7, but the nature of their offense and who was on the ball most of the time prevented that from happening. And that was another reason they lost Game 7. I don't think there's any way they could have changed the fact that they didn't get Tatum enough shots just because of how they play, but he only had two or three stretches where he was just giving it to Cleveland. And my Lord, that dunk on LeBron. <laughs> uh, I think that, indication that is the worst LeBron's ever been got without it being on a Nike camp with the deleted footage. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's up there for sure. So, LeBron, greatest accomplishment, as Mark Jackson would say. How would you rate that statement? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Um, so, I, obviously, you put it behind the three titles. Uh, let's be a little bit realistic here. Um, <laughs> the, um, the argument, I guess, becomes where would you put this over 2007? 
which I think the talent on this Cavs team is a lot higher it than is. the 2017. Most of the, but uh, hey, hey, let me finish my point. I think it's a lot higher than 2007. And I think, and I said this before, even if the Cavs had a month together as a full healthy roster before the playoffs, I think this run would have went a lot differently. Or if they had a training camp, is a, a lot differently. But what that 2007 team had, especially in where basketball was at that time, they were an elite defensive unit. Like that was a great, great defensive team. And that allowed the Cavs to hang around and for LeBron to steal games at the end and kind of be the hero. Who'd they go through in but, the seven? Um, they went through New, uh, New Jersey, uh, Washington, so the Gilbert Arenas team, and then the Detroit Pistons. They right. went down in the conference finals, 0-2 to the Pistons, and then won four straight. Yeah. Uh, with game five being that LeBron one where he scored every point in the fourth quarter in OT, uh, 29 of the last 30 points or something like that. But, days, huh? but with all that being said, with that 07 team probably being a better, complete team, uh, a great defensive team, that was 22 years old LeBron. And that LeBron, as great as he performed there, isn't as smart and as seasoned and as composed as this LeBron, uh, the three-point shot. So for that reason, him completing that at that young of an age, as eight or nine months older than like Jalen Brown right now, um, I I still put 2007 over this run. But I I do think it's incredibly impressive what LeBron has done in this postseason. But people need to calm down. They they beat the greatest regular season team of all time in in 2016. Um, That Spurs team that uh, he beat, which, I mean, that margin was very, very thin. But that's what happens when you beat a historically great team. Like, that Spurs team is still one of the best basketball teams I've ever seen. Uh, that the 2013 and 2014 Spurs are, were just unbelievable. So um, I, I think that that needs to get credit. Even the Thunder team, I mean, the Heat were a, a big underdog going into that series uh, from a betting standpoint, and and beating that team was impressive. So um, I, I think people need to slow down just a little bit. Uh, I don't think the East was strong enough this year to, to really lump that praise on, on, to, on his shoulders. And it was a slightly tough road. You run into the one seed, even though they're Toronto. You don't have home court in that series or the conference finals where you're going up against a 10-0 and home team. Who oh, yeah, it was definitely a tough season. It was definitely even the first t- round. This is a tough first round across the board in the East. I'm just saying, I think there's this thing where you can't say one of. If you say one of, it dilutes your take. You have to say this is the greatest LeBron run, and that's what's going to catch the We have to gas back. We have to give hot takes all the time. Like That's, that's the society we live in. And it's absurd. But, yeah, I, I mean, you can't say one of. But, yes, it was a tougher run than normal. I mean, Indiana f- struggling against them in the first round. If you're the one seed, that's the type of c- team you normally see in the second round. Um, so they put themselves in a tough position right off the bat. And uh, they they obviously did really good against Toronto. Um, I have a feeling that the playoff series is going to look kind of the same, where you got a seven game, a four game, a seven game, and then a four game in the NBA Finals. Mm. But uh, I just don't think that that's going the Cavs' way. <laughs> so let's skip over the NBA Finals then, call it a sweep, and then going forward into the future, what do you th- suppose is next for the Eastern Conference? Are you in the boat? Like a lot of Celtics fans are, that next year, it's our year. You're going to have the five-man death lineup. You're going to have some depth on top of that. You're going to have the coaching. And this is Boston's conference next year. Let's say LeBron stays in Cleveland. 
they make their Paul George move as you would like them ah, to do, and yes. they retain Love. Do you think Boston still definitively has the leg up on them as an NBA Finals team next year? Because I do. I think you have the defensive versatility plus the offensive boost that they really needed this year. Even with Kyrie, this team was middle of the pack on offense, which is a big question going into next year. So how do you see the East shaking out next year? Um, I do think that Boston should be favored next year, assuming that everyone gets healthy. Uh, one thing I'm going to caution you guys, and uh, you're you're entering that contender stage of you you went through the rebuild, the quick rebuild. You're now a contender. Um, speaking as someone that rooted for one for four years, keep your regular season expectations low, um, especially with Kyrie and Gordon coming back. Um, I remember 2015-2016, uh, Kyrie, who came into the league being like a 47-40-90 and 90 guy, um, he struggled with his jumper coming off that knee surgery uh, almost all season and then kicked it back into high gear coming into the playoffs. I think there's a very realistic, expect, uh, realistic chance that uh, both he and Hayward kind of struggle a little bit in the regular season. They're trying to get their legs back under them. They're trying to get into game shape. Um, but by the time that the playoffs roll around, this should be a full, like, fully operational machine. Uh, they, they have a ton of talent. Um, it just comes down to personality management because, as, as you said, you've got two young guys that played a pivotal role in these playoffs that are going to need to be asked to take a step back. Now, I think Jalen Brown is actually going to benefit playing more off-ball. I don't think he's a great on-ball player yet. And playing off of Kyrie, off of Tatum, off of Hayward and Horford is going to benefit him as he's cutting and, and slashing to the basket. Um, I think you have to keep uh, Tatum's usage up, and he's probably going to eat some of that from Hayward. Um, but I, I think that they all have kind of the right mentality there. Um, it's just going to come down to, to managing personalities, and, and Kyrie's obviously the big one there, uh, especially with him going into a, a contract year. Um, he, he's going to want to prove himself. He, he's got that kind of Mamba mentality. And uh, I, I think him really wanting to be the face of a franchise is, is going to be something that Boston, uh, Danny Ainge, and Brad Stevens really need to manage and, and, uh, and keep a close eye on. The caution I would still urge is how Hayward looks coming back. I'm fairly confident in Irving getting back to that next level. I don't think that was as substantial of a knee surgery as it was in 2016 off the initial injury. No, Hayward, but there'll be an early season slump in all likelihood. Hayward, I'm still, I want to see it because they spoke to Danny Ainge in the exit interviews. They're saying he's just getting back to the courts, one-on-ones. He's brushing off the questions. Maybe it was over-optimistic, but people thought this guy was going to play in March, April. If they get to the conference finals, certainly. If they get to the NBA finals, without a doubt. But they shut all that out. Maybe out of an abundance of caution. But I look at how the comeback's going. And I don't want to say this directly without knowledge of the situation. But I do feel like they're probably just a bit behind schedule on that. And I think it still speaks to the fact that we still aren't right away. It could have been a career-ending injury. It went just in the right direction. So now we're in an area where I'm like, let's see it. I want to see how he looks. I want to see what he's capable of doing coming back from it. And if not, there's a lot more pressure on Brown and Tatum to progress even more quickly, especially with what's uh, coming up with Irving with a free agency. So I don't think next year definitively is the perfect storm yet. I want to see it. But I feel very good about it. There's not many losses of this caliber in the conference finals you can come out of and say, 
I'm feeling a-okay about next year. And this team doesn't have to change all that much. Cleveland there's a much harder road. So Justin Rowan, it was great talking to you all uh, series, Rowan. I think this was a good little thing we set up here. I'm glad it happened. It feels like these two teams are always connected at the hip. So until next year, my friend. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. Don't forget about us uh, when LeBron leaves. Um, we're, I'm, I'm still going to be getting jokes off. I, I know people think that I need to have a good team in order to do that, but uh, they, they did not know me uh, in those bad years because, man, do I get my jokes off in a bad year because there are no consequences, there are no <laughs> expectations, and I'm, I'm just go- I'm going to keep letting them fly. So uh, thank laugh. you so much for having me. I do laugh at the thought of Love and Smith leading the offense next year. Oh, no, they, they would be gone. Kevin, if uh, LeBron leaves, it is going to be an absolute full-on teardown. Kevin Love's <laughs> going to be flipped for picks. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to fly to Winnipeg, or not to Winnipeg, to Cleveland with a baseball bat if they don't get rid of guys because I want them to tank for RJ Barrett. If, um, are, are you kidding me? His first name is Rowan, man. Come on. I, I want wow. the great, I want the best Canadian prospect in it, in the history of the country to be on the Cavs. So let's, uh, let's get it going. That is Justin Rowan at Cavs Anada at fearthesword.com. If there's anything to write about in the NBA Finals, I'm sure they will. So go check that out. And that is our show for today. Next, we're talking to Sam Sheehan, getting locked in on the Celtics. It's time for the offseason, guys, which is a fun time most of the time. And we need to chop the numbers. We need to see what this team's capable of doing. And there's only one man capable for the job, and it's Sam Sheehan. We're going to talk to him on the next episode, so don't miss it. It's coming out right after this one, back-to-back, like Drake, for the Canada reference there, Justin. That's our show. Good night. It was Dion Waiters, something else for Kevin Love, but um, no, no, they were trading Dion, I think, to Boston for their pick, but oh then when market, and it was going to be flipped. There's a lot of really bad what if Celtics trades. <laughs> yeah, know. so the what happened was they had a deal in line with Boston. They were going to flip that pick. Uh, for Kevin Love, but what happened was Marcus Smart fell in the draft, and Boston didn't expect it, so they wanted Marcus Smart. One of the um, one of the great what ifs ever too. Marcus Smart stayed in college another year, and had his value drop. He would have been the number one pick, I believe, the year before, which was the. He he was at least on early mocks. Yeah, he was. Wait, what draft year was that? The one he skipped out on. The Anthony Bennett. Oh. <laughs> So now, how about that for a what if? The Cavaliers could have had Marcus Smart. Isn't no, that something? They, well, they really wanted Nerlens Noel, and then Anthony Bennett was like the number two big on everybody's board after Noel got hurt. Yeah. Um, he just wasn't projected that high. Um, I know a lot of people thought Washington was going to take him. I was really big on getting Otto Porter in that draft, um, but the Cavs just weren't drafting small forwards over those four years because they were... Hoping LeBron came back. Man, draft what ifs are so fun. I'm really yeah, I, I forgot that it was Boston that it was the Dion thing. That's right. I had a good, good buddy of mine, uh, the one that was telling me that basically the LeBron thing was done that summer, and and I had a, f- a lot of good information. But uh, he was telling me that that that's what was kind of in place was that Boston was willing to trade that pick for Dion, um, but then Smart fell. <laughs> 